0: It's Monday.
1: Welcome to South London Hardcore. I'm Jack McEnroy. This is Steve Walsh. Hello. And today we're inducting another person into our South London Hardcore Hall of Fame. Today's inductee joins... The father of computing, Charles Babbage. uh, Pioneer of electromagnetism, Michael Faraday. And silent film genius, Charlie Chaplin. And this man deserves his place among them. Maybe even at the top, Steve. Is Ziggy Stardust. The thin white duke. The man who sold the world. The man who fell to earth. Halloween Jack. is David Bowie. What value would there be in a South London Hall of Fame without David
2: Bowie? When I was thinking about putting him into Hall of Fame... I visualised it. It's basically at the moment for me, and this is nothing against computers or uh, electromagnetism. Because I'm a big fan and everyday user of both, <laughs> but I would say Bowie and Chaplin. Do you know what I mean? Because in terms of, and, and it's easy to sort of like draw comparisons between the two. They're cultural innovators. They're massively influential. They're household names. You know, doing research for both shows when you're googling things. You put in Charlie, and it's like do you mean Chaplin. Yeah, I do. <laughs> you put in David, it's like Bowie. Yeah, You're like, yeah, that's right. Because you know, the world knows these these are, and they are they're, they're you know similarly again, they are uh, men who were born in South London, but now belong to the world. They? Mm-hmm. They're global figures. They're yeah. they're part of humanity. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. If you show someone a picture of Charlie Chaplin, they know it's Charlie Chaplin. If you say to someone David Bowie,
1: Aladdin son. what's the um plural of colossus
2: let's say colossi
1: yeah they are that (laughs) in the week that he got rickrolled by morrissey you know we're looking to uh, redress the balance
2: (laughs) you see that yeah it was remarkable uh, (laughs) i mean yeah for people unaware of the story uh morrissey is re-releasing last of
1: the famous yeah, you know it, Steve.
2: I'm aware of it. International Players.
0: What was the cover image
2: for the original? Uh, I don't know. I think it was The Craze. Was it? I think it was The Craze, yeah, some sort of criminal. Um, oh, um, it, no, it might have been um, on The Great Train roles. It might be Ronnie Biggs. But anyway, um, yeah, for the reissue, um, apparently Morrissey has got a previously unpublished, unseen photograph of him and David Bowie together. So he said that's going to be the cover art, and Bowie went, no, it's not. I'm not letting you let that no. be the cover art.
1: Is it because of all this kind of xenophobic comments? and?
2: Well, it's an interesting one because going into this, we'll be talking about uh, Tony Visconti a lot, whose career has not pretty much been defined, but a, a large part of it has been devoted to working with David Bowie and a significant part working with Morrissey. Yeah. And still works with both of them now, as far as I understand. So it could be that sort of awkward thing where, you know, yeah. he comes into the studio and Bowie's like... Uh, all right, Tony. Yeah, thanksies, <laughs> yeah. <Dexies, isn't> it? <laughs> where, 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 where you? Where you been? Just, just like Yeah, yeah. See, see anyone? No, yeah. you know, just, yeah. just people. We what are you talking about? So <laughs> <laughs> Morrissey's response has been to announce that the cover now will be. A Photograph of him and Rick Astley taken on top of the pops, I think, in '92 or something.
1: Oh, I thought he'd photoshopped Rick Astley's head no, onto uh, David so... Bowie personally. <laughs>
2: it was, it was a, it apparently is a genuine photograph of uh,
1: oh, brilliant.
2: Morris. And I think um, the joke is supposed to be Morrissey going, You're you're interchangeable with Rick Astley, I win, but I imagine Bowie is sitting home going, I don't care. <laughs> a, <laughs> And B, there's a photograph of you, Rick Astley. I win. (laughs) You know, you can't produce one of me, Rick Astley. I'm too busy.
1: I want to see this Bowie Morrissey photo, though. You do, do you? I've seen... There is one on um, uh, Google Images, but not that one, evidently. Also this week, David Bowie's got a new record out. The next day, which came out of nowhere, nobody saw it coming. On his 66th birthday in January, dropped the single, Where Are We Now? which uh, got a big response. Uh, the record's out now it's streaming free on iTunes or by the time this goes out you probably have to pay for it and I'm really, I've really enjoyed the record yeah it's brilliant yeah really good isn't it yeah I mean you know we'll yeah. have to talk about it um, at the end of the next Bowie episode because strictly chronological you know I'm no. a big chronological guy Steve yeah. you know I don't want to be jumping ahead but it's, uh, yeah, it's time, well worth listening to time
2: won't change us and we can't <laughs> change time
1: <laughs> just tracing it is the lines but there will be three David Bowie episodes, right? Four if we can ever get him on the show. You last <laughs> Four year.
2: when we get him on the show. Yeah, exactly.
1: Today's takes us up to the Berlin Trilogy, so it's his uh, early life and the 70s. Part two will be 1980 to the present day, uh, which we'll do in maybe a month or so. Um, there's a David Bowie exhibition at the VNA coming up from the 23rd of March, to the 11th of August. So At some point in that time, we'll go talk about that. Talk about 1980 to the present day. And then a third episode will be David Bowie in film, or on film.
2: In maybe, films, on film.
1: Maybe we have to do two.
2: <laughs> <laughs> My working title for today's episode was uh, David Bowie, 1967 to 1979. From Brixton to Bromley to Berlin. Yeah, that's great. Nice, note. Very good. Scans. So our story begins on... The 8th of January. I thought you were about to go into the Beaulieu brothers for a second. (laughs) If you do the strings. (laughs) Um, The 8th of January, 1947. Oh, Elvis' 12th birthday. Elvis' 12th birthday. A great quote from Bowie where uh, he admits, he says, uh, I was stupid enough at one point in my life to believe that was significant. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Elvis' 12, David Jones... He's zero. He's, what, six or seven when he moves to Bromley? Yeah, and they live in a, a series of different houses um, in Bromley. Yeah, but before that, he's...
1: Uh, he's uh, first six seven years in Brixton, around near the skate park, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, went to Stockwell Infant School for a couple of years. And, yeah, it's just a kind of... Uh, I mean, I don't know what you expect from these things. a bit like with Bob Hope's house when we went there. Yeah, yeah. You, like, you get there and you're like... It's just a normal house. Like, <laughs> how could something
2: so wonderful come from it? There's a great quote from Bowie as well that you found, didn't you? Where, uh... Yeah, I've got a book out in the Minute Library. With Bowie, you
1: know, like you say, Steve, he belongs to the world, or probably, more accurately, the universe. Um, <laughs> you know, he's just so, he's kind of otherworldly. You know, he kind of plays up on that as well. But, yeah, I've, so but I opened this book, um, and on the first page there's a quote from Bowie. Uh, He says, I left Brixton when I was still quite young, but that was enough to be affected by it. It left strong images in my mind. I thought, brilliant, you know, this is all very legit, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you do sort of, and we'll talk about it when we get onto the albums, but earlier on in his career, there are specific references to places in South London and songs that have written about things that have happened in South London. And obviously, as he develops as a musician and travels the world and records in different places, there are fewer references to the place itself. But it's nice that even as, you know, an accomplished musician the a grown man, he recognises where he comes from, talks about mm. the influence it, hasn't he? He's not a great student, but at school does excel um, in the arts. An art O level is the only qualification he takes from school. He's not seen as a particularly strong musician, his choir master um, reports that he has uh, an unremarkable voice. <laughs> He's playing saxophone as well at that point, isn't he? Yeah. And it's while studying music at school that are massively important things happen. It probably doesn't feel important at the time, but it's one of these odd little synchronicities and coincidences that just happen in the world. Um, he signs up for a, a music course. It's more of an arts course, a sort of creative course, but music's a huge part of it. And the teacher is Owen Frampton. Yeah, Peter Frampton's dad. And at the time, Owen Frampton says to Bowie, my son Peter plays music, you two should jam together. Mm. And they don't. But they do in the 70s when Peter Frampton joins uh, Bowie's touring band. So they sort of reconciled Mm -hmm. these two boys who could have hung out in Bromley end up working together um, on some of the largest... uh, gigs ever performed Hmm. Bowie leaves school gets a job an advertising agency um, doing various menial duties and occasional creative things but sees music very much as his future joins a succession of sort of blues and folk bands um, none of which have any sort of remarkable success some great names though Um, The Comrades with a K Hmm. King Bee's. The Manish Boys, with one in, so it's yeah, not... Manish Boys,
1: like it's um, a Muddy
2: water song, innit? not um, The Lower Third, The Buzz and The Riot Squad. All bands that Bowie performs with. As uh, David Jones, of course, that's the important thing. And for a little while, uh, Davy J. Hmm. Tries to just like uh, pop it up a little bit. But makes a break from that to change his performing name to... David Bowie not Bowie not Bowie
1: why do people keep saying David Bowie
2: I think there was a, a rumour that it was to to, to rhyme with wow he was advised by record company to no, like Bowie like a Bowie name. No. exactly yeah but the, I think the rumour was that a record executive said oh it should sound like wow so it should be Bowie yeah David Jones dropped David Jones even dropped that name because of
1: Davy Jones from the Monkeys.
2: didn't yeah he? it was a bit of confusion wasn't it
1: yeah there's uh, my dad's friend was in a band um called The Calling, right? Not the band The Calling and did that song If I could do now would. you know, twenty five years later. But his name's Alan Price. Oh right. His name still is Alan Price. Uh, it's not Alan Price and the monkeys, so he changed it to like I think his mother's made a name. Alan Price the Animals.
2: What did I say? Monkeys. monkeys but monkeys are, are animals, so... I can, I can, oh uh, as soon as you said it, I was like, I've worked out like exactly yeah. what's happening in your brain. But they only released one, seven which is great, though. It's called...
1: Uh, empty Days. It's a double-A song called Empty Days, Right. it's South London related, it's fine. Yeah. It's okay. from, like, um, Bethlehem Road in the Camberwell. Uh, empty Days, and I can't remember the name on the other side... Uh, the other song It's like a kind of, like, late 70s kind of... New wave, I suppose. Okay. But really good, man. good kind of Get on YouTube, innit? Yeah. Someone lend me a USB turntable. I'll be fine. <laughs> There's that famous clip that you always see from a show called Tonight, a BBC show. David Jones, president of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men, which I was a, a member of for about five or six years. <laughs> but, you know, he's on there just talking about, you know, sometimes they call us Nancy boys and stuff. And... It's all kind of part of this thing with Bowie, where in those, you know, in his kind of teens, uh, he was just kind of fame hungry, wasn't he? And you know, you, you know what I mean. He kind no, of
2: like it, I read a great quote um, about him where um, the writer said Bowie became successful when, instead of seeking to capture the spirit of an age, he impelled the age to follow him. Wow! And it's true, isn't it? It's the thing you know. And we we'll talk about when we talk about the first album. The first album was a huge mishmash. Of Bowie's influences and and very much what was happening in music in London at the time, and it doesn't work. And this, you know, him tapping into this whole idea of the persecution of long haired men is very much him trying to be part of a larger group. So David Bowie makes his debut as an album star in 1967 with a self titled album that is essentially a, a hodgepodge of his influences at the time. Um, there's elements of vaudeville musical in there, there's skiffle moments, there's things that sound like sort of Tommy Steele and uh, nonnie Donegan. Um, what did you think of it?
1: I grew up with Bowie, but I didn't really know about this record uh, until uh, kind of fairly recently. I think it's, that, it's the sort of thing where people, a lot of people won't know any tracks off it, they sort of won't recognise the cover.
2: Yeah, it's not really acknowledged, is it?
1: No, and I think rightly so. I would, ne- <laughs> I would never put it on for. Um, I'd never listen to it, you know, for pleasure. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, yeah, like you say, it's derivative. You know, there's a lot of humour on it, which is a problem. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, music hall, you know, vaudeville. Yeah, this
2: is the thing. I mean, there's a, a quote from. Well, first of all, there's a quote from a music critic where it's described as the vinyl equivalent of a madwoman in the attic, which. Uh, it's got to be quite intriguing, isn't it? Um, and there's a quote from Bowie at the time where he says, uh, "I didn't know if I were to be Max Miller or Elvis Presley." Yeah, it is a mishmash, but I quite like it. Well, I didn't really feel it was a mishmash. I just thought it was rubbish. Okay, you know, like it's a load of like silly singing, isn't it? The, yeah, the vocals and the lyrics were at least fair part of it, but uh, I thought musically uh, it was good fun. Did you listen to the track, uh, "Please, Mister Gravedigger"? It's the last track on the album, opens uh, with the lines, there's a little churchyard just along the way, used to be Lambeth's finest array of tombstones, um, but yeah, a specific South London reference. Yeah, you know, good. At that point he's still very much writing about, you know, the things around him. When we did the playlist episode in episode three, we were digging around for Bowie songs
1: that mention South London anyway, and it, you know you didn't find that one no I didn't we talked about the one that mentioned Penge, but that's perfect though considering that that's where you reside
2: and and Penge will pop up later in the story as well oh brilliant yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah it's not a great album but there are sort of germs and seeds um, for later albums there's you know themes like the idea of Children as a separate race that will rise and take over from the generation before them. Um, she's got medals, you know, looking at the idea of exploring the idea of gender in a very early form that will, you know, feed into greater success later on. I think it's interesting to note and quite telling in terms of what Bowie did afterwards that the album is released on the same day as Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band where there's a lot of shared influences between the two things, and similar sounding tracks benefit of Mr. Kite and whatnot, sounding quite sort of Ford-Villian as well. But obviously, on that, the Beatles do other things. Yeah, it's far more advanced It's a better, you know, Sgt. Pepper's a better album. <laughs> it's the, you know, no, I, I enjoyed this album, but uh, Sergeant Pepper is better. But And you like to think, in a similar way that, you know, Brian Wilson was prompted by the Beatles recordings to create some of the Beach Boys' yeah. greatest songs, that Bowie sort of, not so much listened to the Beatles, meant I'm going to be like the Beatles, but it, just sort of, but it just sort of went, all right, I could probably do other things, mm-hmm. and look at things a bit differently, and maybe, you know, do other stuff. Maybe a bit like with uh, Cream and Hendrix. Yeah. There is this like, the nice idea of bands being, and they would be very probably aware a bit like of... like with Alan Moore and us, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, there's a sort of, it, it seems there's a, a sort of relationship, with Bolan as well, that feeds through a lot of Bowie's early to mid-career, where they're very aware of one another, they're friends, but they're also rivals. They're competing for a lot of the same um, attention from people. From what you understand and what you read about it, Bowie is a lot more pleasant in terms of how he deals with the situation. Bolan's invited to play on records and... Uh, he's very sort of uh, friendly towards him. After one session where Boland records him, June Boland, Mark Boland's wife, goes up to Bowie at the end of the session and says, you do realise Mark's too good to be playing on your records. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently Bowie just sort of smiles and goes, I know, I know. Oh, wow. Yeah, Visconti's very... um, Tony Visconti, I read his uh, autobiography, and he's very... um, not damning, because he works a lot with Boland as well, but he's very very much on Bowie's side in terms of how he carried himself and how he behaved. a bit like
1: uh, Paul Newman and Steve McQueen, isn't it? In terms of... Like, the rivalry. Right. You know, but like, just Steve McQueen was just such a mark <laughs>
2: <coughs> And it's interesting because well, like, you read it and you think, well, Visconti, you know, works with Bowie now and obviously Bowman's passed on so, you know, it could be useful for him. It's more politic for him to back Bowie in this just in terms of yeah he still his mate but in the book as well um he's very damning of paul mccartney and hugely supportive of john lennon um, right. so he's 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 saying not him just backing who's around he's he's he, he does play favorites but it seems to be based purely on his direct experience with people he tells a great story where um he meets lennon at one point with bowie and uh just starts moaning to lennon about how mccartney failed to credit him for some string arrangements in the album hmm. and lennon says um yeah, I was going to ring Paul tomorrow. Sort of. Uh, this is after the, the split, when they're just really not talking at all. And Leonard was like, yeah, I was going to ring Paul tomorrow, so he's up to. But you just reminded me how terrible he is. <laughs> <laughs> Who was born first, Roland Boland or Zoe Bowie? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point, actually,
1: isn't it? Yeah. Again, the parallels between the two. Uh... Before I came out today, I was watching Bowie doing Heroes live on the Mark Boland's TV show. And there's a lot of in the comment section on YouTube, which is a cesspit. But there's a lot of uh, you know people sort of uh, pointing out the fact that Bowie's like you know he's he's sort of standing there begrudgingly it seems he's kind of very lethargic Uh, some people say that's kind of the point of you know that he's uh, that's an artistic choice whereas others say weren't interested in doing Mark
2: Burnham's TV show well I um, I think if you look I haven't seen that particular clip but just if you look at Bowie's attitude to performance I think it's much more likely that he's uh, playing a role rather than using the chance to go on telly to be a a bit petulant I mean you're talking about a man that studied mime while preparing to be um, a singer and musical performer purely so he could incorporate the physicality of that into his stage work so I think it's very unlikely that he'd take the opportunity to communicate with body language, just sort of go, I'm not too keen on Mark Bowman. I talked to Nathaniel Metcalf about the first Bowie album, knowing that he's a fan, and knowing that you were probably going to damn it. Hmm. I think you may have told me one of my favourite David Bowie stories. Oh yeah? Which was when he released his first album, he was heavily influenced by one of your favourites, yeah, Anthony Newley.
3: Yeah.
2: That... Jump in whenever you... you I'm saying something that sounds familiar to you. Okay. David Bowie sent a complimentary copy of the album to Anthony Newley. You've never heard this story. I didn't hear it from you. Hang then. on.
3: I, I I sort of vaguely know this story. You, you, you start and I'll see if I can finish. David
2: Bowie loved Anthony Newley. Recorded his first album with obviously huge Newley mm-hmm. influences in there. Um, sends a complimentary copy to Anthony Newley who's furious and just
3: tells everyone that will listen that David Bowie is essentially stealing his living. I'm sure that must be a thing... That I've read, but it's one of these things I've probably read it and forgotten about it. Right. I know at the same time that when he released his kind of pre kind of Space Oddity stuff, I remember that I know that that was reviewed in NMA, I think, or Melody Maker by Sid Barrett, right? Who hated it. Oh, really? And uh, Does it sound again, well, yeah. Sid Barrett. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because of and oh, okay. And it's yeah. another thing that I think upset Bowie at the time. So I think right. all these things where he. He'd often reach out to people <laughs> and they would often like just... Max
2: Miller's just throwing stuff at him. He? And he,
3: was, I think it was this, there's a, I've read a transcript of it, it's probably online somewhere, which is the review that Sid Barrett's Dying. kind of yawning and like, oh, this again, we've all heard this. <laughs> uh, it may well have been of like Laughing Gnome, but essentially I like Laughing Gnome, I think that's a good record.
2: Well, the thing is, I, before working here, had never, I'd heard of Anthony Newley, but had never heard any Anthony Newley. And if you work at Gosher any amount of time, particularly when uh, it was the, the Crowley-Metcalf axis.
3: Yeah. If if Anthony Newley was from South London, I'd imagine there'd be a special on I'd imagine. That he's, that he's, that he's from Hackney. <sighs> That's how I got into Anthony Newley via Bowie. Right, okay. Because um, because you'd read all these things about how all the early Bowie stuff's terrible. Sounds yeah. like Anthony Newley. Terrible. And so I sort of <laughs> bought into this. Yeah, yeah. Until like... Hear it occurred it. to me that I was going. I like this, yeah. So if I like this, then I probably like Anthony Newley. So I kind of went backwards and went went and find Newley stuff. I think that that pre what's now Bowie or the, the Derham label stuff. Yeah, he was doing, yeah. I really do think that's completely underrated. I think it's. I agree I think with it's you, I
2: went in to listen to that album, sort of bracing myself. I yeah. was like, "This is going to be horrible. It's going to be
3: awful." It's mm. gonna really, you know, and you listen to go. This is great. Mm. This is so much fun. The stuff that's actually also there's some of it that's like, which I think people they'll never be able to get their head around because, yeah. because, uh, you know, essentially the Beatles changed the way you hear music now, and uh, you know that 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 pre sort of Beatles pop music is is sort of overwritten completely. I think.
1: Yeah, if you want to go and see. Uh... Nat Metcalf at Nat Mecklef on Twitter, you find all his dates and stuff where he does his stand up comedy. See, he yeah, he's he's very he, good. Is
2: he? Um, a touch of the Stuart Lee's about him. Not my words, the words of chortle.com dot com, and they know about comedy. So, no, he's great. I've seen him uh, a few times. Really good stuff.
1: His second record, Space Oddity, is the David Bowie we know and Laughing at it,
2: to an extent, yeah.
1: The album's originally known as David Bowie, you know, Which I think shows how,
2: how badly received the first album was. It's <laughs> yes, yes. like... Reset, we'll call, reset. We'll call it David Bowie. <laughs> Wasn't there album called David Bowie? No, <laughs> definitely not. And there's an American title, which I've forgotten.
1: Man of Words, Man of Music, is it? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Which it, is appalling, isn't it? Call it Space ID, please. Yeah. You know, you're tapping it into a single and it's a great name for something. One of his most famous tracks, isn't it? Ground Control to Major Tom. Yep. Major Tom, with, you know... Sometimes seen as the first time he played with Persona, the idea of him performing as uh, Major One. What about the little gnome? I'm laughing, though. <laughs> but, but, much... but, but I imagine, as a gnome, it's not going to be particularly large. Yeah. So you're right, you're right. <laughs> um, also significant, um, the first album of many that he'll record at Trident Studios um, in St. Anne's Court. Also the first album that he records with Tony Visconti. Visconti doesn't record the whole album, though. He refuses to produce... Space Odyssey because he oh, sees right. it as little more than a novelty record. Oh, right. And he tells Bowie at one point, David, when he's explaining why he won't produce it, uh, and they have to get Ken Scott, who recorded the first album, back in to produce his one track. Um, Bowie's like, well, "Why?" And he was like, you're better than this, David. <laughs> <laughs> because he just saw it as a novelty record, whereas obviously it ties it into other themes. And...
1: Yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't,
2: obviously that he's gone, he'd probably regret saying that um he, he he laughs about yeah his decision now yeah like no he, the, like he, doesn't now. he doesn't stand by it he doesn't stand by it yeah no uh, it's described as the first bowie album proper and mm. it is uh it's a, a seismic shift from the first album um it's it's the, the flavour is very much folk rock and sets the sound you know obviously with bowie uh, with Visconti producing Mick Ronson um coming in on guitar towards uh, the end of the yeah, only yeah, but he kind of he announces himself on the next album. Really, dope, absolutely, doesn't he? yeah. But go on, carry on. Uh, Rick Wakeman turning up mm. to you know be among the session musicians. He, he's always a very different beast from the first album, which was very much a Bowie production. Um, the second one, you know, is yeah much more fulfilled. And it is it's you know on the last track or a version of the last track that Mick Ronson comes in and. You start to get the band together that will record the next album and go on to become the spiders, the spiders from Mars.
1: Yeah. yeah, that final track, "Memories of a Free Festival." You know the Mick Ronson, the version Mick Ronson is on is, I don't think, is all that. But the one on the record is just one of the most, the greatest tracks ever recorded. Steve, <laughs> um, I've only, I only got into space oddity fairly recently. You know, we kind of filling in the gaps for this episode. Um, And it just, it felt like the sort of thing that I'd known all my life, even though I'm pretty sure I hadn't. Do you know what I mean? I know it was sampled in something, but I don't think I ever actually heard that, you know.
2: It is one of those songs where you hear it and, yeah, you feel, not that you've heard it before, but it just feels like it just taps inside and you go, yeah, I've been waiting to listen to this. Good, so I'm glad this is here now.
1: When I'm changing Xavier's nappy, my... uh daughter yeah I've got a little uh, kind of repertoire of uh, songs that I sing to her and one of them is um, Sun Machine is coming down and we're gonna have a party she you know she loves it a personal connection
2: for me as well the, the song essentially is about a festival that was put on by the Beckenham Arts Lab which Bowie was the key figure in arguably um, but reading about it you know the songs are very sort of positive uh story about how wonderful uh the festival was there's that lovely line we kissed so many people that day and it comes across is that the line yeah, yeah. that's the line I knew, <laughs> I knew, you're a jukebox you i know i actually play you um and yeah and it's, it's this wonderful thing at the end of the sun machine coming down and you know allowing everyone to have a part of this sort of cosmic force descending um but then reading about the song and the festival itself. Um, apparently, on the day, Bowie was in a foul mood because <laughs> <laughs> people had set up stalls and were selling things, and he was like, "This is not the point. We yeah, shouldn't yeah, be here trying to make money. We it's should a be here trying festival. exactly. We should be here trying to make uh, music and make things happen, and make you know, we shouldn't be here trying to turn a profit." And you get a vision of him, sort of like Jesus in the temple, sort of turn those. I mean, he doesn't as far as no turner. But um, one uh, of the pe- women who, who co-founded him, said uh, he was in a foul mood that day. He hated me and I hated him. And I was like, he kissed so many people that day. <laughs> but apparently, and I haven't checked the dates, but um, it took place on the same weekend as Woodstock. So wow. in hindsight, apparently Bowie sort of tapped into the idea of, uh, idealised idea of, of the festival. You know, it should be being about beautiful things happening, people kissing, the Getting sun shining. And yeah, listening <laughs> to some
1: great music. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> um the festival itself took place at the Croydon Road Recreation Ground. Oh, what? Which Looking out the window at Croydon Road, Steve. It's pretty much 15 minutes away from where we're sitting now recording. So there's this lovely, real hyper local feel mm. to it as well. And as you say, um, album version and a single version. A single version where they, they split it into an A side and b side. Yeah, so they could flip it over and play the other side on the other side of the 45. The album version dominated by sort of keyboards and organs. The single version, very much dominated by the riffs of Mick Ronson. Which ties in perfectly
1: to the title track of the next album, doesn't it? The Man Who Sold the World. And
2: Mick Ronson's... I mean, once you start, and again, not knowing Bowie's work as well as I do now, before starting research for the show, Mick Ronson. I mean, just the guitar riffs that that guy's come up with, that you have no idea... You know, you just sort of go, that as well, of course he did. My dad's a huge Bowie fan, particularly the stuff that we're talking about today.
1: Not, obviously, that first dreadful record. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I've always kind of been aware of Mick Ronson. And like, you know, the the famous Top of the Pops clips. um, gin Genie, maybe I'm thinking of. You know, where the camera goes past him and Mick Ronson's like right at the front and he's just like on his, uh, I think it's a Les Paul, you know, just blasting out these riffs. But yeah, it is hard. it's a bit harsh, isn't it, for these people
2: who they don't get their name on the record. You know, the difference between a solo artist and a, and a band. Well, uh, the lineup at this point is Bowie on vocals and a tonne of other instruments, because he's uh, you know incredible multi-instrumentalist. Mick Ronson on guitar, Tony Visconti himself on bass, and Woody Woodmancy on drums. Bowie's living in a place called Haddon Hall in Beckenham. Just prior to the recording of The Man Who Sold The World, the rest of the band essentially move in as well. And the the album is essentially written and jammed together in Beckenham. So you get this album that is just wonderful, that was, you know, born born in Beckenham. Recorded again at Trident Studios, produced again by Tony Visconti. It's um, essentially a metal album, isn't it? Yeah, um I like it, but I don't love it. I find I
1: I, th- I love it. I think it's uh what it's a bit derivative again, I think, like the first record. Not like the first record, I mean, obviously far better than that. But it's just he's doing Led Zeppelin and he's doing Sabbath I think. Yeah, yeah. And you know, as you know, there's a song called Black Country Rock, if there yeah. was any doubt about that. Well, I was on one of those lyric, meaning lyrics websites and people were like, black meaning black music, country meaning country music. I was like, no, 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 no. It's the black country. It's more Rampton.
2: But apparently that's in tribute to the move rather than um, Sabbath. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Apparently. Well, I was thinking of Zeppelin and Sabbath. They're both well, black country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's
1: a theme of Bowie's career that uh, lurching from one style to a completely yeah, different absolutely. style or even, you know, there, there's a kind of uh, natural evolution about it. But, you know, that kind of drastic change is, you know, features throughout,
2: doesn't it? I've got one qualm about this album. Because I like every single song on it. Oh, right. Wait for the Circle's great, isn't it? It's great. But, here's my only issue with the album. The track listing. It's in the wrong order, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) There's no way you should open with Wait for the Circle. It's eight minutes long. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. You should open
1: with Man Who Sold the World,
2: I think, really. No. I've, it's alright, I've worked it all out. I've worked out the perfect track listing for The Man Who Sold The World. Are you going to read it
1: out now, or should people go to South and you've uh, reordered
2: all of Bowie's albums into the correct order? <laughs> there, I've, got, I've got other issues later on. There's a couple yeah. of things later on I'll change. Basically, as far as I can tell, it's a concept album about a man who wants to change the world. He looks at the world, finds it wanting, comes up with solutions. They don't work. He's doomed. So if it opens with the Superman... It's basically this guy looking at history and looking at human history and how human history has been pushed by people who have excelled. That's his beginning point. He's going to do that. Black Country Rock is almost him surveying the world and sort of like finding out what he needs to fix. He sees running gun blues. He sees warfare. He sees people slaughtering one another. All the madmen. He sees the insanity of the world. After all, he realises that the world itself has no solutions for it. That's side one. Hmm. I've, ch- cause I've, changed. I've, I've kept it as the same side thing as well. Side two opens with She Shook Me Cold, where he tries to sort of find uh, affection and solace in other people. and He doesn't. That doesn't work. So then, the saviour machine, he creates a computer that will solve all the world's problems. But he doesn't. He makes a computer so good it creates problems. Coming up to The Man Who Sought The World, he realises what he's done, confronts the failings of his efforts ends with the width of a circle where basically he is doomed and dragged down into hell by facing up to what he's done. Honestly, Only let's... you were around, Steve. Yeah, exactly. Finally. It, it, David, if you're listening, I don't want any money, but feel free to re-release the album in that order. Is that like that time you told me you'd uh, come up with... Uh... A Better Line Than Kanye.
1: Yeah, that's And it is.
2: <laughs> and it is. I stand by that. As you say, Bowie at this point decides to constantly reinvent himself, doesn't he? Um, and the next album opens with almost a hymn to that idea doesn't it Cha 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 changes It's 1971 Hunky Dory recorded again at Trident Ken Scott back on production duties because uh, Visconti's working with Bowden as well at this time so. Well Ken
1: Scott was the engineer when he in the last couple so Yeah, yeah he's a, been around David Bowie I'd say is probably my second favourite solo artist of all time after Bob Dylan Kanye West third place You know, give Kanye West a couple more decades. He might even catch up with Bowie. Hunky Dory is really where he starts to peak, I think. And the peak just goes on for a ridiculous amount of time. Yeah. I remember hearing Hunky Dory for the first time. I was 17. We'd just moved uh, from Portland Street around the corner to Villa Street in Warth. And, you know, we were decorating the whole house. And my dad was playing it on cassette. And... um, I'd never really listened to Bowie before that. Well, there were a couple of other mem- Bowie memories which I'll mention, you know, as we go along. It was just incredible. I remember, I remember, I got such a vivid memory of it. I was sort of converted that day. Do you know what I mean? You know, I remember hearing Andy Warhol for the first time and sung for Bob Dylan. But the one that really, you know, um, it was Queen Bitch. Yeah, partly because I said to my dad what songs this, and he had to say the B word, and I think it's the <laughs> only time I've ever heard him say it. <laughs> But from start to finish, it's a marvellous record. One of the greatest records ever recorded. It changes Life on Mars. You know, You Pretty Things, The Beauty Brothers,
2: those songs I just named. <laughs> you know, Life on Mars, Steve. My favourite on there, um, and possibly it's easy to guess if you think about how much I love the last album, is Quicksand. Beauty Brothers as well. I mean, it's interesting because you don't like the first album. Mm. But there's an element in the Beauty Brothers which wouldn't sound out of place in the first time at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm starving for me
3: gravy. Bravery.
2: Yeah, remember our friend Nick Bray, uh, he works at
1: Watson's Piccadilly. I'm sure you've read his recommend cards if you've ever been in. Don't shop there, obviously. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this uh, episode's not
1: brought to you, by. <laughs> no. no, buy stuff <laughs> on Amazon. Click the Go to <laughs> com first and click the Amazon link. If you're going to buy any Bowie record after this, and you probably are going to fill in the gaps, go to southontheharcore.com first and click the Amazon link and we get 10% on all MP3s and 5% on all physical music. Yeah, Nick Bray. Um, I'm sort of, I can't remember, I mentioned to him one day that I was listening to Hunky Dory in the way and he was like, oh, Beauty Brothers. And it, I was like, oh, right, interesting that that was his standout track, but that's yours as well. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Not well, I mean you can't pick sound, a standout, they're all, all the Beauty Brothers. As much as I love Hunky Dory, Steve... My favourite Bowie record is the next one. The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and Spiders
2: from Mars. The first real concept album, you know, because your one was just, you made that up, didn't you? Very much so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I decided David Bowie didn't have enough concept albums or episodes. <laughs> <laughs> and what a concept as well. What if a pop star was an alien and a god? Do you know the influence or where he got the idea from? Jimi Hendrix. No, go on, is it? Uh, Vince Taylor. Do you know Vince Taylor? No. He was one of the sort of early British rock and rollers. Um, Ooh, you rock and rollers. Watch out, you rock and rollers. (laughs) You might think you're an alien god. Um, Who basically had a mental breakdown where was uh, so out of it on drugs. And and Bowie met him at this point. And uh, yeah, Vince Taylor was convinced he was an alien and a god. And this intrigued Bowie a lot. He was like, what if a pop star was an alien or a god? And created... This whole tapestry out of that. Obviously, other influences there as well. You know, uh, Ziggy Stardust, Niggy Pop is not a coincidence, is it? Oh right, yeah. That's just the coaching nah. yeah, <laughs> now. Yeah. Okay. Rick Wakeman's gone for this album. Joined yes. So he's he's doing fine. He's it's okay. Downhill for him, isn't it? <laughs> <sighs> um, another incredible Ronson riff with the track Ziggy Stardust. Yeah, just yeah. amazing. Isn't it?
1: Yeah, I've, I could just go through track by track and say how much I love it because it's just, it is every track is absolutely sublime and if, you know, you could do a Desert Island disc and I'll just pick eight pick eight of the tracks <laughs> off there and I'll go with those and my luxury item is the other two whatever. But that it'll get boring if I do that. So just buy the record, listen to the record. Like, if you want to
2: start somewhere, start with Ziggy Stardust. Can I talk about a track that isn't on the album, but I think it should be? Yeah. All the Young Dudes. Yeah. Which he gifted to mop the hoople. I don't know what the deal was with Mott the Hoople, but Bowie seemed, I guess because he was successful at this point, the records were charting, he was becoming uh, very famous. But he seemed pathologically obsessed with Mott the Hoople uh, being successful. <laughs> they were going to break up because they weren't successful. So David Guy said, I'll give you all the young dudes. Yeah, you can yeah. record a single. Um, he, he later offered them Drive In Saturday. Yeah. And uh, the lead, I forget what's the name of the lead singer? Ian. Ian say Turner it's not Ian Hunter yeah I think so yeah um I think it was uh driving Saturday where Ian Hunter turned it down because he said uh there's a lot of chord changes (laughs) (laughs) I want you to imagine imagine you're a musician right in 1972 and David Bowie's offering you a song and you go it's a bit hard work isn't it have you not got anything a bit more straightforward remarkable something easier on the left hand All The undoes is a tremendous track it but, is. and I'm not just saying he should keep take it back because of that but thematically it would fit on here so well Yeah. didn't he offer him something else first
1: and they turned it down uh, it was all, Suffragette City or Hang On To Yourself I, I think, think it was, was
2: Suffragette City yeah. yeah he's just constantly offering what uh, the Hoople songs sometimes they take them sometimes they wouldn't just outrageous next album 1973 Lad Sane Ken Scott produced him recorded The Trident again is very significant for one particular reason, in that it's David Bowie's first number one album. After Ziggy Stardust is released, he becomes uh, incredibly popular. The earlier albums are re-released. Even then... Well, I think the the first David Bowie album uh, doesn't count as part of the re-releases. They just try (laughs) to forget about it. So that's never significantly charted. Um, If you look at the record's... Um, in terms of their chart success, um, online, Space Oddity, it will tell you charted at the at number seventeen, but in 1972 rather than 1970 when it was released. Oh, right. The Man Who Sold the World charted at number twenty-six, but in 1972 rather than 1970 when it was released. Hunky Dory um, charted at number three, but in 1972 rather than 1970. So mm. all all of the the, the sort of uh, the charting of them up to that point is a, a series of re-releases after the success of uh, Ziggy Stardust. Aladdin Sane goes straight in at number one.
1: That famous cover image, I mean, probably the most famous image of Bowie and it. Yeah. The lightning strike on his yeah. face. You know, two different coloured
2: pupils. on know got his eyes closed in it, so not that. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, a follow-up from uh, Ziggy Stardust. The concept here being Ziggy goes to America. On the original, um, I don't know about later versions, but off on the track listing, after the titles, um, there's an, a, a place in brackets, and it's the place where the song was written. It's all basically just places in America, mm-hmm. and it's Bowie filtering his experiences of touring America and seeing America as you know an incredibly famous musician. Um, the panic in Detroit. Yeah, but through the eyes of Ziggy Stardust. Aladdin saying itself the title track. Significant again for having the title itself. But then in brackets afterwards, you've got 1913, 1938, and 197 question mark. Mm. And it's basically the years before the outbreak of the last two world wars. And Bowie's, uh, at least artistic, belief that there was definitely going to be a third world war at some point in the next few years. That's another remarkable song. Um, Particularly... The Piano Break by Mike Garson.
1: Blah, blah, blah.
2: Yeah. That's, a, that's not it, though, I did a guitar that, it. That's probably in there as well, but <laughs> it's, yeah, remarkable, isn't it? Mike Garson said in a 35-year career, um, it's the thing he's asked the most about. He said every week, someone comes up to him and goes, that piano bit in Aladdin <laughs> Sane. He's like, yes. So the spiders are gone at this point. It's the end of an era. But the era ended a little bit. I think, when they all moved out of Haddon Hall. Um, Visconti was the first to move out. Um, and he talks about in his book about he's living with his girlfriend at the time. So the idea of living with the other bandmates and their partners just got a bit too much. And I was, I was quite sad because I like the idea of all these people just living down the road from me. Uh, and Visconti goes, yeah. Were you thinking they were still there? <laughs> to <laughs> just, just I'm my window. just listen out, see if I can hear a little jam going on. Um, but there's a lovely bit where Visconti goes, uh, yeah, I knew it was time to leave Beckenham, so I moved to Penge. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, and apparently when he does this, uh, Bowie christens him and his girlfriend the Penguins, because uh, they live in Penge, so, you know, wordplay, mm. it's what Bowie's all about, isn't it? We'll have to gloss over pin-ups,
1: because we ain't got much time it's brilliant though pinups. ups it's a covers album of well the idea was that it was going to be london groups from 64 to 67 or the london scene i should say uh, it said it's a kinks cover pink floyd the who and i bought it in a thrift shop in new york um for a couple of quid again having never heard of it <laughs> uh, it's just because it's all covers uh, it was supposed to be a there was supposed to be a follow up one called Bowieing out which was all american stuff but my favourite thing on there is uh, a bonus track. So they don't really count. It only came out when the CD came out. And it's not even from the same sessions. But he does um, Springsteen's Growing Up. You okay. when they said sit down, I stood up. Ooh, Growing Up. So that's great pin-ups, but...
2: Again, right. uh, hit number
3: one. Oh, right. Yeah,
2: same year as Aladdin Sane. So this is right at the, the sort of peak of his uh, commercial Mania, success. Yeah, very much so. And one year later, um, another album that goes straight into number one. Diamond Dogs. One of my other vivid Bowie memories as a
1: child, well, I'd say child, that's probably about 13 because I would have been into music at that point. Um, My dad played the uh, vinyl, uh, the opening track of uh, Diamond Dogs, which is Bowie's kind of spoken introduction you know, treated voice and you know music behind it. You know, and in the death as the last few corpses lay rotting in the slimy thoroughfare. You know, the fleas the size of rats. That's when rats the size of cats, um, which is haunting and uh, really sets a scene. And you, you know, you have got this vinyl gatefold vinyl where David Bowie's on the cover lying down and you flip it open and the rest of his body is a dog's body
3: do you know what I mean (laughs) it's quite
1: vivid it's incredible and I think it put me off Bowie a bit I got into music about the age of 13 before that I was not interested in any way and I got (laughs) heavily into like the Beatles and the Stones and Hendrix and the jam and a load of other things and Bowie would have been perfect but I think probably hearing that just made me made
2: me feel it was a bit impenetrable it is um, it's slash and burn isn't it essentially I mean, um, again, I was reading about when a writer was saying he, the key to his sort of creativity was he would place himself in alien environments. So he would, you know, inhabit personas, or he would, you know, physically go to places like New York or Los Angeles or Berlin. Um, would turn these places and these ideas to his own devices and use them to sort of feed off and create, and then he would destroy. it what he had then created. And I think Diamond Dogs is the best example of that. I mean, he has, you know, alongside uh, Bolan, created glam, mm. you know, and it's, and it possibly he sees what it's becoming. It is, you know, and this is what's interesting as well. You know, I was born in the 70s and uh, grew up at a time when, you know, a lot of this stuff w- would have been in the recent past. So it was very similar. And, and growing up, I've always dismissed glam as a, uh, and, you know, a lot of music from the 70s is just awful. Just, like, the worst stuff. Grandad. <laughs> but you sort of look back at it now and you go, all well, right, there were sort of glam elements that were fantastic and phenomenal. And, you know, Bowie is obviously a huge part of that. But it's almost like it's 74, yeah, Bowie sees diet. what's coming. This and ain't rock and roll, this is genocide. Exactly, yeah. He's like, you, you guys do what you're going to do. I'm... And it's not even the case of he stops doing it. Um, he creates this apocalypse, essentially, doesn't he? He creates this apocalyptic world where, and you know, again, uh, the spiders are gone. Mm. You know, uh, a lot of the album apparently are built off of Mick Ronson's arrangements, but you know, they don't actually play on the album. Um, and it is seen as almost a punk album. It sort of sets the template for a lot of ideas that people will explore in punk. The idea of destruction and mayhem and the descriptions of the characters that he puts into the songs. It feels like he's describing Sid Vicious, who's going to come along in a few years' time. It's you know, it's a remarkable a remarkable end of an era and a sort of prescient view of what was to come. I wasn't really expecting to
1: get much from it. I don't really know why. Maybe because, again, that opening track, which is great, but it's not really... A it's not a song you would listen to, do you know what I mean? I've found I've been listening to Diamond Dogs probably more than anything over the last month. Really? Yeah, absolutely love it. In a, uh, the next few records, he does this thing where, you know, tracks go into other tracks and then come back again. Yeah. And it's just like kind of the first time he does it with Sweet Thing and Is It The Candidate. Candidate? Yeah. yeah. And Big Brother and uh, Chant of the Ever-Circling Skeletal Family. And it, yeah, like you say, it's dark and...
2: Uh, well, he had plans yeah, to do a, a, a rock opera of... of uh, yeah, it's right very awkward, didn't he? Yeah. And there are a couple of songs there. We Are the Dead, you know. Yeah. Rebel
1: yeah. Rebel's on it, which is obviously another one of his big tracks. Yeah. But that seems well out of place to me. Yeah, no, do not not fit yeah. at yeah. all. No, think.
2: absolutely. So Bowie's trashed the whole glam persona. Moves on to... I don't know if this phrase is specific to him. It's
1: a great Plastic phrase. Plastic
3: soul. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it would apply, I think, to
1: uh, a similar, in some ways, artist, Kevin Rowland. Yeah, that, it's honest.
2: true, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You Although, know. I don't know, I don't think, I think with Kevin Rowlands, uh, he'd think of it as like a very visceral soul. He he wouldn't, do you know what I mean? Yeah, Bo, yeah, Bo, yeah, With Bowie, again, it's persona, it's him sort of exploring the idea of it, whereas Rowlands would, would consider himself to be inhabiting it completely. I, I'd imagine that. Like, we haven't we spoken to either of these gentlemen, let's make that very clear.
1: Hmm. But, you know, the thing with um, Kevin Rowland, the constant reinvention, mm. constant, you know, it's not, it's yeah. not as prolific as Bowie. No, no, obviously. there's a lot of parallels there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, you, you know, the, in the fashion element yeah, as well, you know, absolutely. you know the outfits that go with these reinventions. But, yeah, the outfits Steve, with Young Americans, huge trousers.
2: Yeah. Well, it's a zoot suit, pretty much, isn't it? Mm. It's a, uh, yeah, it's a phenomenal look. And, you know, I am a huge fan of, uh, you know, Bands like Dexys and whatnot, who do change up every so often. You know, we'll just like, you know, um, and with The Fall, similarly, where uh, you know, John Peel said about the thing about The Fall, um, it's always different. It's always the same. You know, you listen to full records, but they're always playing with new sounds. You know, the lineup is in constant flux. The constant being Marky Smith. And similar thing with Dexys, where the lineup is, you know, settled across periods, but they're chopping and changing. They switch. Instruments, you know, um, an experiment that Bowie uh, plays with uh, from time to time, and it is this idea of you don't know what's going to happen next, mm. but you can always. You would never have seen this coming, would you? This album? No, not at all. But that's what's great about it, isn't it? And the fact that he can do it, and it is, he's also he's very canny, and we'll come on to this later on as well in terms of collaborators, you know, and also very good at spotting uh, talent. You know, he's doing what the Hoople? Yeah, <laughs> but for this album, um in you know, signs up or signs on for for the album, a young Luther Vandross.
0: Yeah,
2: you know who I had no idea going into this they'd ever collaborated. No, they co-wrote. Was it fascination? Fascination. Yeah, yeah. Sure enough. But yeah, uh, Vandross is uh, a sort of backing vocalist across the album, and you know, you'd imagine would be a constant figure, just sort of advising and helping shape. And also, um, you know, at this point uh Bowie's guitarist and rhythm section all come from a background of sort of jazz and funk. So they they have more, you know, input in terms of the the, the shape of the album. Uh it's recorded overseas. Worth noting for Diamond Dogs it was re- recorded at Olympic Studios in Barnes, which we covered oh, in a previous episode. Um but yeah, this is the first album that Bowie records overseas, Sigma Studios in Philadelphia. Uh, a, uh, at this time he is Incredibly famous. So there's a, a group of youngsters that hang outside, essentially for the duration of the recording. They're just like basically camped out the front. And Bowie calls them the Sigma Kids. And when the album's finished and recorded and mixed, he gives them the exclusive first play. He invites them into the studio oh, what a treat. for a playback of the new album, which is you know incredible, isn't it? Do yeah. you imagine they're going out, going, out, mates, going, we had uh, Bowie's new album. What's yeah, it like yeah. it's like a soul album. Get out. Yeah. Why are you learning about David Bowie's new album? The Young Americans. <laughs> Um, fame as well with uh, writing credit for John Lennon. Yeah, well, John Lennon's
1: on the album as well. Isn't he? Yeah, does backing yeah. vocals on the "Across the Universe" cover.
2: Yeah, a cover that John Lennon described as better than the original. I don't agree, but I mean, John Lennon, I mean, Lennon probably right. knows better and than me, doesn't I put,
1: he? I listened when I was listening to Young Americans in its entirety for the first time. So I'd listened to the title track, for, you know, many times. Yeah, I didn't realize the "Across the Universe" cover was coming. It really yeah. knocked me over. Yeah, I mean, but I love. Remember the first time hearing the Beatles version. Yeah and being just completely bowled over by that as
2: well. And there's an interpolation on the album, on the track that you... Yeah, on Young Americans, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. When,
1: uh, I read the news today, yeah. oh boy.
2: These albums are coming
1: at light every single year, man. It's yeah, it, uh, incredibly prolific, isn't it? Is it the opening line on Station to Station, the return of the film White Duke? Certainly in the opening track, is it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you've only been gone in a few months. <laughs>
2: Also, this is the first time we've met the Finn white duke. Tell us more about him. Hmm. He's alarmingly thin at this point as well, isn't he? Yeah, this is Bowie pretty much at his lowest point. I mean, this, this album's recorded in Los Angeles, and uh, Bowie is on the record as saying, I know that I spent time in Los Angeles because I've read about it. Hmm. He has no recollection of it whatsoever. Or really? you know, very patchy He's just eating red and green peppers, wasn't he, honey? Yeah, drinking milk... Uh, copious amounts of cocaine, um, uh, an alarming. You know, he's always, he always had an interest in the occult and a fascination with certain aspects of Nietzschean philosophy, but at this point it's become an alarming obsession with Nazism and the Third Reich. Not in uh, racist terms, it is this idea that's, you know, prevalent throughout all the albums up to this point of. Nietzsche and Superman, um, Crowley, and the idea of self-determinism and power. You know, a fascination with orders such as the Golden Dawn, which gets referenced a lot. Yeah, but at this point, he's he's also um, just come off the of filming um The Man Who Felt's Worth. Yeah, which uh, gives the record its cover, and the next record, which we'll come to. Yeah. Yeah, the opening track is 10 minutes, and just to reiterate and clarify my point from The Man Who Sold The World, I have no problem with, I, I, I personally think With The Circle should be at the end of the album for aesthetic reasons, Station Station has a 10 minute track on the opening of the album, is brilliant. Yeah, well it's perfectly, is Oh, yeah. just a wonderful, wonderful track. TVC15. That's a song about uh, a dream Iggy Pop had that his girlfriend would get eaten by a television. Or possibly a dream that David Bowie had that Iggy Pop's girlfriend would get eaten by television. But basically it's a song about Iggy Pop's mm-hmm. girl getting eaten by television. Um, Golden Years, mm-hmm. a song that Bowie wrote for Elvis Presley, originally. Oh. Elvis turned it down. Elvis, thinking he's like Mott the Hoople, isn't it? Just, uh, mm-hmm. I won't have that one. Can I have young Americans? No Elvis. <laughs> I need that one. So Station Station is produced by Harry Muslin. Visconti takes a break uh, to work with Finn Lizzy. And, obviously, there's been intervals where right? he worked with other bands, T-Rex being What's the obvious, obvious. Well, this is the thing. But it's interesting. When he's working with T-Rex, Bowie's quite understanding. But when he finds out he's working with Finn Lizzie, Bowie sort of says to him... And it's almost the, the reverse of the Space Oddy episode where Bowie's like, Why? What are you doing? Why are you wasting... He, Bowie thinks he's essentially wasting his time working with a pub rock band and mm-hmm. just wants him to come work uh, with them. But uh, he doesn't have a station station. But he does come back for Lowe in 1977. The thing is, co- Bowie's co producing a lot of the time, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. So. And, like, you know, uh, Ronson is doing a lot of work in terms of arrangement. Mm. So it's very much a collaborative process. And this really comes to the fore um, on Lowe. Because Visconti, as I say, is working with other bands. But he gets a phone call from Bowie. And Bowie sells the album to him um, by explaining. Um, he, he says to, he says to uh, you know, Visconti. I've only got sketches for songs, I haven't got anything finished, but um, I'm going to be working with Brian Eno. So he goes, you might be wasting your time. And Visconti says, uh, if I'm spending a month in a studio with David Bowie and Brian Eno, there's no way I'm going to be wasting my time. Eno turns up with uh, a synthesizer in a suitcase... Visconti turns in up... In a suitcase or and a suitcase? In a suitcase. He's probably got another suitcase with pants in. Uh, Visconti turns up with uh, the harmonizer, which is uh, a new device that extends sounds, so it sort of stretches sounds, so it manipulates sound waves. So um, Eno's got a device to create sound, Visconti's got a device to manipulate sound, Bowie's got a few ideas for sounds. This is going to be magical. Yeah. Bowie's not sure about the harmonizer at first, but once they get into the studio... Uh, I think it's Dave Davis is the drummer at this point. And uh, Visconti says he picks up immediately on what the harmoniser can do and starts to craft his drum work around it. So he's deliberately doing these fills that he knows Visconti can sort of extend later on and drop in different ways. So immediately the three of them are operating on a completely different level to pretty much anyone else in the world at this point. Yeah, it is a magnificent album. It's It's ridiculous. right up there with his best stuff. Well, the best stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, you have to. We yeah. have to. This is the thing with these albums that we're talking about now. Once you've got Bowie, Eno and Visconti in a studio, there's this. You know, it, it's going to sound ridiculous. It's not going to sound ridiculous. People will be outraged, but you're talking George Martin and the Beatles at this point. You, I think you are. Honestly, I genuinely think. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> Load is <laughs> no, but, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's such innovation, mm-hmm. isn't it? What's your favourite track of it? My favourite track on it. ...is Warsaw. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Bowie said that Side
1: 2 was an observation in musical terms... ...of my reaction to seeing the Eastern
2: Bloc. My... Do you know why the cover has... ...the photograph it has on it? Uh, no. It's a visual pun. Um, because it's his face in profile. So the actual album title is Low Profile.
1: But I'm right. Yeah. It's go. one of the greatest covers of all oh. time. It's such a beautiful photograph. Yeah. The orange is just so li- alive. Yeah. Like, it's one, it's another one of those ones. I took, um, like, I'm not no stranger to just taking photographs holding a record. Yeah. You know, I've done it many times. But I've got a photo just holding low. Because I was like, yeah, I need a photo holding this. Because <laughs> just, I want, I want to be connected to this record.
2: My favourite rec- uh, song on it is Be My Wife, though. When I heard Be My and this was another one which I'd never heard uh, until going into this um, show, my first thought and the thought that stayed with me is that Blur owed David Bowie a lot of money, in it. Do you not think it's it's a lot of sort of like uh, Modern Life is Rubbish? Yeah, Parkwise yeah, Blur yeah, yeah, riff-wise yeah. vocal performance. I was yeah. like, wow, oh, this is half of Blur's songs. Hmm. This is remarkable. It's great. It they did great.
1: Um, in the enemy or melody maker? I think in the enemy actually. They did an issue once that came with a CD called Under the Influence and it was all the kind of current bands, which I guess it must have been about some point between 98 and 2003. (laughs) I can't remember when exactly. But they interviewed everyone who they would regularly cover and they all sort of named their influences and they put it in order and David Bowie was at the top. Oh yeah, yeah. So, you know. Correct. I've
2: lived all over the world. I've left every place. It's great, isn't it? But yeah, the instrumental stuff on there. I mean, as much as I love Bowie's voice, um, I could just—I think I could just loop those instrumentals forever, just listen to them. It's just remarkable. Yeah, people type. don't
1: necessarily think of him as a, a musical artist. I don't think. No, and I mean, yeah, you know, people who maybe don't know, there's, he, he's like Prince. You know, what I mean, just give the guy—but
0: much better. <laughs>
1: now here's musicologist and recent guest Stephen Graham.
0: Okay, so I'm going to talk about. Um... David Bowie's Low. This is his first of his Berlin Trilogy albums released in the start of 1977. And so firstly, I guess it's a really interesting album for me because it was very much the key to Bowie for me. Um, When I was about 16, 17, I discovered the Beatles and lots of other wonderful music, but Bowie was a little bit behind. I always saw him as a sort of confusing figure. He was a bit of a dilettante, it seemed to me, all his uh, different persona in the 70s. Um, I found it interesting and fascinating, but I didn't know I could, couldn't get a handle on it. So I had a, a couple of greatest hits, you know, like the songs, and all the rest of it, but I hadn't enga- engaged in any really deeper, intense way with Bowie. <laughs> so when I got low, possibly the first actual album proper I owned from Bowie, I suddenly found a key um, into him as an artist. I realized that um, it was a case of a kind of a use-your-illusion type thing where you sort of embrace the, the superficiality and transience of all these different uh... Personas. so in low he had become this alien figure borrowed from man Who Felt earth um... using synths, using really up to date technology um, using Eno, using ambient music, using all these different uh, signifiers and references which are completely separated this, this album from Bowie's earlier career um, in glam rock and plastic soul and all these other genres and I realised with Low that it's the case with Bowie that all, other notions of sort of authenticity, where an artist would be working in one particular music style throughout their career, didn't really hold. You had to embrace the illusion, use the illusion, use the sort of mask where whatever mask was in play at any one time, and that was really the key to Bowie for me. I realised that with any one album, you needed to treat the Bowie as a new sort of Bowiness. In, in terms of a new sort of character and a new sort of uh musical frame of reference so so that was that i loved I love the album in a more in a basic sense. The first half of it is, consists as people often say of songs or sort of song fragments the second half is more ambient um it doesn't quite hold in practice because the first track is an instrumental, even if it is much more uh upbeat and uh, poppy than the those instrumentals on the latter half of the album um I think. What's very interesting, apart from the whole sort of uh new U-wave sound in the first half and these really, really uh, effective atmospheric uh, pop songs in that first half, is the second half, which is, as I said, filled with more sort of ambience tracks. Um, the, the album, if anything, should be credited to David Bowie and Brian Eno. Such was Eno's influence on the composition and production and um, sort of arrangement of those tracks. Um, one in particular seems interesting to me: uh, Warsaw, or Warsaw, I guess, in more straightforward <laughs> pronunciation. But um, this is a sort of a six and a half minute track, which. Shifts from three or four minutes of um, ambient uh, synth sound, So using the uh, EMS Electronic Music Studio in England, the pioneering music studios using their um, Synthia A synth. So not the VCS3, which is um, which Kraftwerk made famous, and lots of other uh, people in the 70s. It's the sort of more small, it's the smaller one, the more portable synth, the Cinty uh, A, which Eno came up with the opening three minutes of atmospheric sound. And um, Bowie came in and added his his vocals to the latter half of the track, these very very strange eerie um almost Bulgarian folk vocals, um which are vocables so they're wordless and um, they seem to fit the mood of the track very very well. Um, but they seem to be drawing strangely on Bulgarian folk music. Now, if you place this alongside, um I don't know, uh Gene Genie from a couple of years earlier, you'll see how Bowie very much um he sort of capitalised on a um a sort of a floating a floating um floating sense of musical identity. Uh he, suddenly he's operating in an ambient folk, Bulgarian folk um zone that was completely separate from anything he'd done before. Um people often talk about Lowe as a, very, drawing very much on minimalist composers in the seventies like Philip Glass and so on. But actually I think the the, the influence runs the other way. Um, at least in some interesting ways. So so the track I'm talking about, Warsaw, um, this clearly influenced uh, Glass's music, uh, Scotsie trilogy, so the Koina point Poina Scotsie and so on, uh, in the 80s, the the films done by Ron Frick and the others that Glass soundtracked, um, using these kinds of very distinctive vocals that Bowie um, introduces into this track, Warsaw, so that's an interesting line of influence. Uh, Phil Klaus also wrote uh, Low Symphony and Hero Symphony later on. Um, symphony is explicitly based on those two albums, two of the three Berlin Trilogy albums. Um, so that line of influence doesn't go from high to low as it were; it goes both high-low, low-high, um any which way but loose, basically. Um, one other interesting thing I just want to talk about is its very potent sense of futurity. So this this is the idea that with with the introduction of all these new um, analog synthesizers um, and digital effects processors like the Evenside harmonizer that the producer Tony Visconti used to get that very distinctive drum sound on the album um, with the introduction of all these very interesting new technologies uh, you find that they, they suggested to um, modern ears and still do in an interesting way um, a, a very sort of vivid sense of um, future possibilities, so a very vivid sense of glimpsed world that you 'd find in um Philip K. Dick or um Isaac Asimov or other science fiction writers and speculative fiction writers. These musical instruments seem to be calling from the future somehow they seem to capture some very real and very uh, potent sense of the not now. Uh, sense of the beyond and they actually still I think in a strange way um, communicate that to, to our ears even even in 2013 when technology has become much more sophisticated in a technical sense these analog synths from the 70's you'll f- hear in a lot of hauntological music and a lot of um, retro uh, electronica and so on that are trying to capture these lost futures um, these, these instruments really really um, like I said Seem to channel something from the beyond into now. Seem to channel something of futurity in the way that the best speculative fiction does. It presents a sort of a portal not into necessarily the future that is to come, but into a kind of a, um, into a kind of a suppressed or uh, nested future in our own present. Um. So when you hear Low Now, you don't hear an album that's thirty six years old, thirty seven years old, um, trying to sound futuristic. You. Hear Kind Of a buried or nested future or a futurity, um, in the way that the if you go back and read Philip k. Dick or something like that, even though, for example, the man in the High castle set in the early sixties in an alternate in an alternate present at that time, um you don 't get a sense that it 's an alternate past, you get a sense that it's it's some kind of um criss-crossing temporal uh <laughs> A uh, wormhole where it, it's almost your your sort of lost future. It's almost a kind of um, futuristic novel, even though it's set fifty something years ago. So that's that's the kind of power of low. And um, it uses these. Very, very interesting ways explores very interesting musical styles that Bowie had um, not quite broached before, even though uh, the, the preceding album Station to Station contained hints of it, um, and it laid the groundwork for two really super albums that followed: Super, really great albums that followed Low, Heroes, and Lodger, and then even uh, into a sort of a proto-New Romantic phase um, with uh, with um, Scary Monster, Super Freaks. Uh, you can see the grammar being laid on low here. So, yeah, great album, two halves, wonderful. Mm, I've waffled. Bye.
1: When I say it's one of the greatest album covers of all time, Steve, and let's be honest, Bo's got some great record covers. Yeah. You know, in this period, the next episode just listed the worst album covers ever, <laughs> ever put out.
2: But Heroes may just top it. It is remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> Jack's replicating the post Which uh, on, a video, on an
1: audio podcast Yeah but Steve you were meant to then do the Iggy Pop Idiot cover You know that? No You know um, Iggy Pop uh, David Bowie produced Iggy Pop's album The Idiot uh, Which has got um, The final track from Heroes Which I can't remember the name of now Is basically the same track as um, It's the um, first track on The Idiot It's the same song um, so It's the midnight, Secret Life uh, of Arabia
2: uh, Secret World of Arabia
1: whatever it's called. That's the last track on here. But the cover, yeah, so the cover is David Bowie pulling this kind of uh, mime uh, pose. Yeah. And then the cover of The Idiot is also in black and white. I think it's the same font, and it's like, um, if you put them next to each other, it would be um, Iggy Pop facing David Bowie doing a similar pose. <laughs> oh, nice. Fantastic. And both uh, superb albums, aren't they? Eno mm-hmm. gets to stretch his legs even more, I think, in Heroes, doesn't he? Yeah, because...
2: Um... Yeah, uh, Eno's on Heroes as well, but uh, also uh, Iggy Pop's albums recorded in um, Berlin as well, which is why Bowie is working. And I think. Well, e- I mean, Eno and Visconti sort of get involved, involved as well, as well basically. Yeah. He co-wrote all the songs yeah. that He plays on it and stuff And I think Visconti and Eno are involved as well I think they all sort of basically And um, Iggy Pop turns up on Heroes as well Doesn't he, doing backing vocals
1: Yeah, uh, you've got
2: Robert Fripp on it as well uh, Yeah Marvellous addition Well this is the thing The last, you know As, as much as um, I've talked about my love for Mick Ronson um, We need to mention Carlos Alomar Who's sort of yeah. worked on last albums, And it's a different and this is it's just classic Bowie, isn't it? Where it's it's noticeably different, the guitar style, to uh, Ronson. But it's still great, Carl Salomar. And now, uh, for Heroes, you get Robert Fripp uh, of King Crimson coming in. And, you know, Eno and Visconti weaving their magic. So you get things like, um, you know, the opening of Heroes is essentially three layers of Fripp guitar track just laid over one another, turning this, like, Sonic wall That just bombards Mm. you From the opening bars It's just tremendous Um, Talking about Heroes as well One of my favourite Stories Of production I've ever heard Comes from a track Where um, Visconti Set up Three sets of microphones Across the studio One that was Five foot away from Bowie One that was Ten foot away And one that was Twenty foot away And he basically Activated them across the song So when you listen to it Mm. His vocals start off very relaxed and normal. They get more agitated and become a strangulated scream pretty much at the end. But what Visconti's doing is in the booth, signalling to Bowie as he's switching between the microphones. So Bowie knows Uh, he's got to reach the next level of microphone. So initially, he's got the microphone at a normal place. Suddenly, he's got to go twice as loud to get to it. And by the end, and Visconti's not changing levels on the microphones. They're all picking up. And he told Bowie this. So he's like, by the end, he's like, you've got to scream across the room to, you know, just be heard. Uh, Visconti, also the inspiration for the song. Uh, it's a song about uh, lovers kissing by the Berlin Wall. And while they were recording the album, Visconti was having an affair with one of the women that was working on the album. And Bowie had seen them, um, seen their first kiss outside uh, a taxi cab by the Berlin Wall and uh, just wrote this song. Obviously changing it to... You know, yeah. lovers trapped in Berlin rather than, you know, a bad, bad boy from Brooklyn. There. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, such a remarkable track, isn't
1: it? Yeah, they used it to great effect at the Olympics. I thought, yeah, you know,
2: it was in the opening ceremony, wasn't it? Before yeah, they'd even yeah. proven themselves heroes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those songs where, um you know, generally I despise adverts. And when things turn up in adverts, you feel they've been a bit spoilt. But it's one of those things where it's so good... They can exist beyond these things. And it could turn up in an advert, and I'm like, show me your car, I don't mind, but hmm. let me just listen. Well, it's Sound and Vision. Um, yeah, wish currently gonna, doing the rounds. Which we couldn't really go the whole episode without mentioning. Yeah. It is a tremendous track. I've got another qualm about uh, running orders. New Colm should be the last track on the album. It should be the last thing you hear. Why? It's just perfect. And, the fact, and also, just the fact that it's. Uh, the instrumental thing, and then it goes into a vocal track, and it just, could, not undoes completely, because obviously, of Out, Moss Garden, and New Colne as a trilogy of songs, is spectacular, and you can't spoil it, but it just would have been, I think, perfect, to end on that track. Just mess about with your iPod, Steve. I, I've done it, I've done it, fi- it's alright, I've fixed all these David Bowie albums. <laughs> um, this, and I, uh, I feel bad talking about a track that isn't on the album, when there's so many tracks on the albums we haven't talked about, but um, Abdul Majid, have you heard this? No. It's an instrumental track they recorded at the time that never made it on to Heroes. And I was like, put that on. Do you know, Just end, you know, it's such a great uh, track. He only, I think he got, ended up on a reissue at some point in the 90s. And uh, it gets it's the name of the track from Iman, his wife's um, surname. Oh, no. So, you know, wouldn't have had that name in 1977. But... Yeah. No, you don't marry her till ninety two, does it? No, no, yeah. Um She got a tattoo of a bowie
1: knife on her leg apparently. <laughs> she... mm. Nice. So the Berlin trilogy, Steve, is a bit of um It's a misnomer, isn't it? It is. The Lodger from nineteen seventy nine, which is the start of the bad cover era. <laughs> the unofficial Bowie bad cover era. As it's known. It was recorded in Switzerland,
2: was it, and somewhere else? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean you uh, suggested that we could leave Lodger to the next section. And I I, I can see your point. There's a two-year gap. So from 69 to 77, he's recorded 10 albums. You've been getting at least an album a year. Some years, uh, two albums. Ridiculous. Spoiling us. 78, there's nothing. He takes a year off, which is very unusual. For him, wasn't it, though? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I say take a year off. The guy's... Uh, he's still doing stuff. Um, and they reconvene... In 79 to finish off what is called the Berlin Trilogy. Although, you know, strictly speaking, only Heroes is really recorded um, in Berlin. So on that basis, you know, there's a gap. It's not a Berlin album per se. But I think the important thing is it's Visconti, Eno and Bowie still together. Mm. But I mean, even people who worked on the album said at this point, Bowie and Eno weren't gelling in the same way they had on the previous two albums. No, it's a very different sound as well, isn't it? Yeah. We are starting to transition with both of them, with Bowie um, and Eno, into what they're going to do next. I mean, Eno's uh, burgeoning fascination with uh, world music that sort of becomes... Yeah. Have you heard My Life in the Bush of ghost. No. It's now what we did with uh, David Byrne, which is one of the most remarkable albums I've ever heard. It's basically uh, samples from uh, the radio mixed with uh, world music. All right. Yeah, it's incredible, wonderful, and like, you know, taps into a lot of what, uh, the, the work with Talking Heads and, and also a lot of what ends up on, uh, Lodger.
1: I've only listened to it a couple of times, so my thoughts on it at the moment are basically that it starts off with a couple of ropey tracks and then picks up <laughs> a bit, but I'm open to that To be honest,
2: yeah, they've, they've signed up another, um, guitarist with King Crimson Lynx in, uh. Adrian Blue, but. Blue, blue, blue! <laughs> but yeah, it's not. It is not as good as as Lowell Heroes. Um, Why did you have to end it on a bomb note, Steve? <laughs> I said, just cut off at Heroes, man. I think we've established before, uh, up to this point, that Bowie's done playing. Oh, there's also there's some, some decent stuff on here. Um, I really like the Assassin and Red Sails. Yeah, Boys Keep Swinging, probably the most famous song yeah, from I the album. not very good. But and this is the other thing about it that I probably didn't enjoy as much in the other two, no instrumentals. Although musically, I think it is still it's very tremendous. interesting. Yeah, it's, there's a lot going on. It's fantastic, and this yeah. is
1: one of the reasons why I'm reluctant to say much about it because of what it needs to grow up. No, I
2: stand by it in terms of instrumental stuff and musical stuff. It's just lyrically, they just sound a bit tired at this point. And you know, as you as say, he didn't record in '78, but he did spend the year traveling the world so you know and th- there is a theme of travel and exploration within it but yeah the... tell Eno and Bowie how to make records <laughs> how dare you <laughs> so there'll be loads of stuff on
1: southlandhardcord.com this week uh, links to Bowie live performances and stuff so you'll you, Steve put up Young Americans off the Dick Cavett show definitely put that up put up do feel free to put up uh... Starman uh, from Top of Pops yeah we've all seen it put it up anyway and uh, what was the other one I mentioned on the Mark Boland show Heroes and then you're free to pick your own stuff as well freestyle after yeah. that yeah. <laughs> we're on Twitter as well at SLHC let us know your favourite Bowie songs Bowie albums um, you know if, what, if you've got strong opinions about Bowie's record covers let us know you can email us at southlandhardcore at com. so we'll see you in a few weeks for more David Bowie then maybe in a few months after that in the meantime it sounds like we're not doing shows yeah in before. the meantime there are going to be loads of other shows man <laughs> if you're going to buy stuff from Amazon anyway which you definitely are go to southlondonhardcore.com first and click the Amazon banner and even replace your Amazon link with the South London Hardcore Amazon link